Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host. And in this conversation, recorded in September of 2019, I speak with Australian economist Steve Keen. Steve is probably the most respected economist in the world for those of us who get climate and collapse and deep adaptation and things like that. Um, his book, Debunking Economics, really uh, is his best known writing, but he's also, he has an amazing podcast that I highly recommend, the Debunking Economics podcast. He's at Twitter at, at Prof. Steve Keen, and he also writes for Evonomics, that's E-V-O-nomics, the next evolution of economics. You'll find his stuff there. It's pretty heady but I think you're gonna find this conversation deeply insightful. I sure did. Steve, thank you so much for joining in this uh, post-doom conversation series. I imagine that this is probably not the kind of conversation that economists are normally in, uh, engaged in. And, um, and yet I'm so delighted because I learned of your work actually probably five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. um, for many people, of course, their sense of what an economist is, depending upon where they, or a professor of economics, depending upon where they are uh, in their worldview, is somewhere between high priest or uh, madmen. Uh, you know, um, I think it's a combination of the two was a bit closer to it. Yeah, right, exactly. And so before we get into the kind of questions that I've been asking all of the guests, the participants in this series, uh, for people who aren't familiar with you and your work, if you could just share a little bit about sort of what distinguishes you from other mm. sort of formal uh, economists and economics professors, um, and give us a sense of like sort of who you are and what you're particularly concerned with or passionate about these days. Okay. Well, I, um, I did a conventional economics degree as part of an arts degree back at um, Sydney University in the early 1970s. Uh, a bit of a story behind that. I, would, I wanted to do engineering with economics and there was no such combination. So I was told to do law with an arts degree, which is the only combination available majoring in economics. And because of my engineering interests, I also did mathematics. And I wasted a year doing, two years doing psychology as well. I wasn't particularly impressed with the psychology course because it was dominated by, by Skinnerist behaviorism at the time. Um, but the mathematics was always an interest. Uh, and then in the middle of my first year at university, uh, which was a time of great political vomit, as you can imagine, because a bit like the States at the same time, the Vietnam War was the issue. The same story in Australia. We faced it being conscripted to go and fight for freedom, which I always found a bit intellectual contrast. <laughs> and um, as a part of that, I was you know, very critical of the... I, I developed from being a supporter of the Vietnam War and the belief was fighting for freedom to an opponent in believing it was actually a continuation of colonialism, swapping from the French to the Americans. And in that particular uh, environment, I also had a very progressive first-year economics lecturer who actually is now retired as a professor of political economy at Sydney University at the end of his career. And he explained what's called the theory of the second best in a class lecture, first-year lecture. And this is something you only normally learn if you ever do learn it uh, in honours or masters or PhD courses. And what it says is if you're more than one step from what the economists divide, describe as nirvana, which is you know, equilibrium of supply and demand, uh, and you're more than one step from there, do you take one step towards it, do you make things better or worse? And this was in the context of discussing uh, whether you should have trade unions or not. And a general bias in neoclassical economics you would have seen from their policies for the last 40 years is you know, any, any combination is bad. 
let's eliminate trade unions. And one of these days, let's eliminate monopolies as well. Uh, of course, they never get around to the latter. <clears throat> now, what, it, what the theory of the second best showed, that if you get rid of one or the other, but not both, you make the outcome worse, according to neoclassical theory. And I just remember sitting there in shock and thinking, hang on a second, what I was told was quite obvious, you know, you should try to get to this equilibrium supply and demand. If you're two steps from it, which is realistic to say where you are, and you get one step closer, you make things worse, there's something wrong with this theory. So I dived in and I started learning the under the, I gave up reading the textbooks, I started reading journals, I became exposed to a whole debate over the nature of economics, which is not turning up in our books at the time, never has. And from 1971 on, I started to diverge and I built my approach to economics fundamentally and my mathematics. And uh, that's where I, I learned uh, dynamic systems and nonlinear systems and chaos theory. And when I got into doing my master's and then PhD, I thought what well, I'd apply those skills to economics. And I found Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, which to me made a perfectly logical explanation of how capitalism would go through a series of booms and slumps into a crisis caused by an excessive level of private debt that Minsky hadn't been able to mathematically model it. And with my, I, I'm not, I was, I, I could have probably gone into a mathematician's career if I wanted to as a young, young man. There's no way that I compare to a mathematician now, but I know a lot more mathematics than most economists learn, including mainstream economists. And one thing you learn is stability analysis. And uh, one condition for stability analysis happens to be a particular property of a, what's called a matrix. And I looked at how Minsky tried to do his model and the matrix was, was the wrong type. It just didn't work. Um, so I built a model based on predator-prey dynamics. Um, and that gave me the cycles and leading to a financial crisis. So I, that was what it, what it gave me when I, when I first built the model. And I actually finished writing it in August of 1992. So we're talking uh, 40, what, 37 years ago. Hang on, 27 years ago. Um, uh, what it had was a period of diminishing cycles before the crisis itself. And I finish up my paper with a comment on how uh, the chaotic dynamics in this paper should warn us against regarding any period of relative tranquility in a capitalist economy as anything other than the lull before the storm. Well, that's actually what happened. There was what they call the Great Moderation, followed by the Great Recession. That was a prediction of my Minsky model. It was an anomaly for the neoclassical world. So I've been building on that and I've been trying to extend that ever since into monetary models of the monetary nature of capitalism because conventional economics, uh, much to the amazement of anybody who assumes they know what economists do, economists leave monetary dynamics out completely. So they have models of capitalism without money. And I've been building technology for doing that and at the same time getting into ecological uh, economics because uh, you cannot explain production without energy. And yet, not just the neoclassical school of thought, but also the post-Keynesian, which is the one I'm broadly associated with, have models of production that don't involve energy. So just in the last three years, I've worked out how to do that. And I'm now trying to build an entirely a different approach to economics, which if it has any basis in the history of economic thought, it comes from the physiocrats. Yes. The school of thought that preceded Adam Smith, that Adam Smith misinterpreted and stuffed up to give us the labor theory of value that led to all the disputes with the neoclassicals, all I think a total, not a total waste of time, but most of the last 250 years in economics has been a waste of time. And I'm now trying to build one on a, on a physically grounded, monetary realistic, non-equilibrium complex systems approach to economics.
Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. Yeah, the only forms of economics from an ecological sustainability, genuine sustainability, not shallow environmentalism, but the only mm. economics to my mind that makes any sense is in the sort of domain of biophysical economics or ecological economics, but uh, living systems and our impact on them. So I'm curious, this is really the, the, the heart and soul of this conversation series is inviting my various guests to share their story of how they went from um, uh, well, let's just say a very different understanding of the past and the future to where they are now. And especially some of the um, most important turning points, emotional, psychological, mm. um, meaning turning points in that story. So take as long as you want, but give us mm. a sense of, of how you grew up and where that shifted and sort of where you are now in terms of how you understand the past and the future. Okay, well, probably the major thing is starting off as a Catholic schoolboy. Uh, with the Catholic uh, brothers, Marsh brothers being uh, conservative, but sort of a lower grade, poor man's Jesuit, is the best way to describe it. <laughs> I think you'd be aware of what I'm talking about. Yeah, I grew and up Catholic myself, so yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's there's an intellectual side to them, but they haven't quite got the smarts to be Jesuits. And uh, that, that political environment was right-wing but libertarian. Strange combination. I think that's fairly broadly describes what the education basis I had was. Get to university, of course, in the middle of the Vietnam War, uh, or the, the ending of the Vietnam War, that raises all those issues about colonialism, freedom, et cetera, et cetera. And finding that I uh, revolted against my um, upbringing, which pushed this whole idea of fighting for freedom, uh, the, the, quite literally the contrast, I'm being conscripted to fight for freedom, was the what's going on here, and I've got to find out more about this issue. And the more I read, the more I saw it was a colonial war, uh, which we put our noses into and made far worse. Um, so I couldn't describe myself as a draft resistor. I had to seriously think about it. I know as, as a conscientious objector, uh, the question of the conscientious objection Australia at the time were, if your wife, um, da uh, daughter or sister was being attacked, uh, would you intervene violently? The answer was bloody oath I would. Uh, well, that would rule me out as a conscientious objector. Um, and, and so I, I, I would have been a draft resistor had Australia not left the um, Vietnam War at the election of the Whitlam government in 1972. In 73, if you imagine all the, all the passion that they had amongst a, a young group of students at the time when there were no university fees, uh, we didn't have all the financial constraints students face now, there was full employment. In Australia at the time, the unemployment rate was less than 2%. And that was recorded in the old-fashioned way, whether you were registered for the dole or not. It wasn't asking you questions about how long since you'd worked and so on. So it was a realistic figure. And in that world, you didn't think you faced any worries about getting a job. So being rebellious was not a negative thing for your career. And we had all this passion of revolting against the Vietnam War, and then suddenly our involvement is over. And the energy passed instead into questioning what we were being taught. So there was it began with a dispute in the philosophy department over philosophical aspects of feminist thought, which the professor turned down, the staff voted in favour of a whole topsy-turvy process until finally the staff called for the university to go on strike to enable this course to be put on. And then because of that, the, um, uh, the economics exploded at the same time. We held our own little dispute, organised what we called a day of protest over the nature of economics. And that led to the formation of the Department of Political Economy, who actually successfully revolt, student revolt, uh, that led to the overthrow of the mainstream, not the overthrow, but creating a separate stream for economics. So that was my beginning. It was a fairly radical shift in my mindset. 
but I could never, I, a lot of my colleagues who went through that went from being neoclassical to Marxist. Yeah. And I, would, I read Marx and I, 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 I could not swallow the labor theory of value. So when I read Marx, I wanted to find a good proof of the labor theory of value. And what I found instead was a disproof of the labor theory of value. Yes. So I became a critic of Marx as well as being a critic of the mainstream. Um, and that was my position for a number of years. I ended up going, I didn't do an academic, uh, straight academic course. I went from uh, doing an arts law degree to realizing that I, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to have these lawyers as my friends because this bunch, I had a progressive picture of my fellow staff at university. And then I get to the law school and all my arts, arts law student friends have gone on to a, doing an honours degree in arts or going to another university with a more progressive law degree. I found myself surrounded by all these conservative voting uh, moneyed um, people. And I thought, first of all, two things. A, these going to be my, my social circle? I don't think so. And B, uh, there aren't as many, the rebels aren't as dominant as I thought they were. This side might well win in terms of the direction society goes on. So that's, of course what I saw happening from 75 on. And I got involved in school, school teacher for a while. I got into overseas aid. I was an education officer for an overseas aid organization. Did that for several years. Uh, and then right literally at the age of 33 and one third, uh, was working in a part of the government in Australia called the Accord, which was a attempt to bring a sort of compact between unions, government and, uh, and, and business to, for better management of the Australian economy. That was subverted by mainstream economists. I quite literally saw that hap happening inside the bureaucracy. And we, we ended up going nowhere. And I thought I've got to go back and solve some of these issues that I knew sort of just in economic theory. So I went back to do my master's degree. Uh, in the middle of the, I better go back a bit. One thing that was very influential on me when I was doing my undergraduate was reading The Limits to Growth. Yes. So I have the most, the most thumbed and most broken apart book on my shelf is The Limits to Growth in 1972. Oh, that's awesome. yeah. So that gave me a strong systems. I, of course, that also charmed my mathematics because underneath The Limits to Growth, there's a whole set of nonlinear differential equations, which is second nature to me. So I understood the approach they were taking. And I saw at the same time the way economists, and I'll name a particular one, William Nordhaus, undermined and, and denigrated that research on a basis of a completely fallacious misreading of the, of the, of the, the model. So that's the background way, way back for me. No, I'm glad so you big, included that. Thank you. Yeah. And then I, um, it's, so the, the emotional turning points, I, I really began to feel in the, in the, in the, as the seventies progressed, uh, that there was going to be some sort of approaching economic breakdown. Uh, of all things, I, I went, I went back to university in the mid eighties or actually late eighties. Now, when my first presentation was on um, uh, actually Marx's theory of value, um, which is, you know, again, is a critiquing theory of value, but explaining how you can get a, a sound foundation for economics out of Marx's dialectic as well. And it happened to be the day after the stock market crash. And in Australia's case, the stock market fell 25% in one day, having risen 80% over the 10 months before that in that one year. And I started off saying, you mean you didn't notice? <laughs> of course... All these economists are a complete shock. Not many of them had, not many academic economists, certainly in Australia, have share market portfolios, but they were in shock. And to me, it was a natural part of a complex system. So um, that was a rather nice start to my academic career. <laughs> and then um, getting getting in, in, into it, I what I found is that I'm I think I'm an entrepreneurial person by spirit. 
So I'm not opposed to one of the one of the sensible ethoses of capitalism. But what I see is in terms of how it's treated by the mainstream, they completely ignore that most vital strength of capitalism and focus on its tendency to equilibrium, which it does not have. And so you get an ideological and completely pointless defense of the system, uh, which at the same time ignores not just its strength, but its major weakness. And that is one of my entrepreneurial friends described his uh, business activity. He said his business activity is socializing his losses and privatizing his profits. Um, so you have that same dilemma that I've realized that as much as I like the innovative spirit of capitalism, and I still do, I always will. Um, it has to occur in the context of an, of an ecosystem. And what economics completely ignores is the role of the, the that the economy is part of the ecosystem and not vice versa. Yes, so I needed exactly. to bring about an economic that included that as well. And um, so that's been the overall orientation of my, my academic life. It's been a, a strange journey. But part of, part of me has been, I, I can't tolerate what a kind of strange colloquy to call bullshit. And you find so much in academic economics, it's ridiculous. And it's not just on the right. It's also Marxists who can't give up a labor theory of value, who won't admit that Castro was an argument against socialism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's not just one side that does it. There is a religious tendency to how we behave. In the worst sense of the word, religious meaning cultus, meaning we, we support the cult and we won't accept criticism of it. And I saw that throughout economics as well, and I've tried as much as I can to keep myself separate from it. Uh, but it makes you uh, a pariah. But the fortunate thing for me is that I was sort of a leading pariah. I was lucky to have predecessors, people like Jeff Harcourt in Australia, who've always been a critic of mainstream economics, um, the Joan Robinsons of the world, the Nicky Caldors, and so on. Uh, one of the pleasures of my life in later times is meeting some of the successes of those people, people like Janos Kornai. You know, I now correspond with people who were once people that I had were the distant heroes of mine. And that's that's a very positive thing. Um, but uh, yeah, you live life as an outsider. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a necessary existence inside economics. It makes life difficult, but I wouldn't have it any other way because the other way involves following bullshit for breakfast. <laughs> yes, right. Well, this, that's great, Steve. And I'm wondering, um, what, when did you, uh, you know, well, actually, let me back up. What kind of language do you find helpful when speaking about a um, contracting or deteriorating future? I mean, that we, we are in ecological overshoot, and that's mm -hmm. only beginning to dawn on a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've used the term post-doom for this conversation series, yeah. uh, looking beyond sort of just the terror or the, the fear or the grief, uh, holding the grief because that helps us mm. stay present to reality and other species. But what language have you found useful when speaking about a contracting or deteriorating future? You mean talking to other people or talking to myself? Well, really, yeah, that's an interesting question. Really both. How do you language? When, when I talk to myself, it's all in terms of differential equations. Oh, okay. um, because like if, if, if you, the, the classic equation for decay is exponential decay. One over X DXDT equals minus alpha. Uh, and, and that gives you a plunge, you know, um, and, and, and that's a common thing to see, you know, in a, if you're modeling radioactive decay or if you're modeling a species which has eliminated its prey. If the predators ever succeeded in eating the last sheep, that's the last meal they're going to eat apart from eating themselves as they decay to zero. So that, that language makes it quite easy for me to accept the possibility of growth followed by a sudden collapse. In terms of talking to other people, um, it's really talking about sustainability of trends. And on that sense, I, I'll say if there's an unsustainable trend, it will break. 
and that's and then the, I'll point to what can be unsustainable. So the, the first area I was working on was private debt, the increase in private debt as a ratio to GDP. And I might, uh, we, I might, would it be worth cutting in some data on that front to show you what I'm talking about? So I'm going to share, okay, this screen. Can you see it clearly enough? Yep, yep. Okay, the red line is private debt to GDP in Japan, which was on a nice exponential trend up to the crisis that began in 1990, momentum carried it over the line and then declining. So that's a, a classic exponential rise and fall. Uh, if I go and take a look at the American data, that's the American data. So I was calling a crisis was inevitable in America from 2005, because when I plotted this data and, and saw again the same exponential trend, uh, when I started calling it was uh, literally about here. Yeah. Uh, so this trend, the economy is dependent upon this trend continuing. It can't continue and therefore when it breaks, there'll be a crisis. So the idea of unsustainable trends is, is a major part of my way of communicating it to non-mathematical people. Sure. That's great. Yeah, thank you for showing those charts. Um, so that sounds really intellectual. It sounds like it's, it's about knowledge. It's about understanding the nature of complex patterns, uh, the, the nature of systems, um, which is great. But I'm also curious, you know, did you find uh, over time, how did you, how did you process, you know, even reading limits to growth? I mean, when you understand that uh, we're not living in a world of perpetual progress, as most mm. of us assumed, um, that can be emotionally challenging for many people. Was that ever the case for you or was it? Oh yeah, so I know. There's, oh, the two major incidents in that life both involved my, my then partners, so my second wife back in, uh, nine, in 2005 when I realized that a financial crisis was inevitable and my current partner uh, when I realized that economists have set us up for an enormous ecological catastrophe as well. So in the first case, I've been asked to do a... Uh, expert witness case on predatory lending in Australia. And I was writing the, the report, and when you're hired as an expert in the Australian legal system, even though you're paid for by one of the, the plaintiff or the, or the defendant, you're you actually notionally employed by the court. So you can't behave like a barrister, you must, you must back everything up that you say. And I wrote, uh, I wrote a line, because I was focusing on private debt to GDP, I wrote a line saying, Private debt to GDP ratios have been rising exponentially around the world. And then I realized I couldn't rely upon hyperbole. I had to back it up. So I thought, I'd look at the data. It won't quite be exponential. I need to change the word somehow. But then I then plotted the Australian data, and it was almost a perfect exponential fit. Uh, and then I, it was, I realized it was in shock. And I thought, well, that's just Australia. What about the rest of the world? Like, all the data I get was America. And I plotted the data I've just shown you there before the downturn occurred as well. And I just went, holy shit. There's, there's going to be a financial crisis coming. Um, somebody has to warn about it. At least in Australia, I'm that somebody. And then my, my wife, this is two or three o'clock in the morning that I did this. My wife woke up a few hours later and asked me what's going on. I said, what's going to happen to us? I said, well, I'm, if I'm warned about it and I get known, we're going to be okay. Um, but I can just see uh, not the same scale as the Great Depression because the government is much larger now than it was back then and government spending will attenuate the downturn. But I can see many, many people being caught in this crisis and catastrophe. And then it's just a sense of you, you're, you're like a, a passenger on the Titanic who's seen the iceberg, knowing that the captain is sailing full steam ahead uh, because he hasn't given the, 
lookouts and even oculus to save money. That's literally the case apparently. Uh, and there's going to be a catastrophe. And I'm walking past all these people who are blase enjoying the situation they're in. We're going to be turned into catastrophe at some point. Um, and that was a very, it's emotionally draining. But uh, the, 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 you don't have you ever seen the, uh, have you ever by any chance a fan of the, the Terminator movies? Uh, I I've seen one or two of them, yeah, but it's been a while. Okay, well, then in, in the final, the last one that's come up, which is actually very well done, um, the guy who plays um, John Connors uh, is being asked by the man who's actually the younger man who is his father, of course, in that particular series. And um, the younger man says to his, no, the man he doesn't know is his son, says to his son, oh, it must have been fun growing up with a mother who could see the future. And John Connors said, no, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what I felt like. It's, um, this, we're going to run into a brick wall here. I can see it coming. All these people around me, not all of them, but the vast majority, are going to walk into this and have no idea until they get hit by it. And it's a very emotionally draining. But that's nothing on what happened when I realised what economists have done about climate change. That really, that, that, that particular way was my awareness. I was thinking about it all the time. But like a financial crisis, you can survive. Um, but when I, this is just very recently, when I re realised what economists have done on climate change and how insanely criminally stupid their work has been. I was just, I literally found myself holding my head in my, my hands, just like, I was just like this. And my girlfriend came in and she has, she's, she's, a, she's Buddhist and she just lives completely for the moment. Uh, there is no past, there is no future in her life. And that's a, that's a wonderful salve for the approach that I have to life. And she walked in and saw me in the state and I said, what's, what's, what's wrong, what's, what's wrong? And she sighs, so she speaks in a very staccato English very eloquent and very staccato. And I said, I've just been reading about climate change. And he said, oh, while you read about that stuff, you can't do anything to change it. If we die, we die. <laughs> um, and like, and yeah, I mean, yes, that's completely true. I mean, I think I can do something about it. At least if I don't try, I'll never, I'll never be able to live with myself if I don't try to do something about it. Um, but the sense of, holy shit, we're fucked. Courtesy of these guys who've made one of the little simplifying assumptions to, to, to meet their preconceived notions about the capacity of capitalism to survive anything. And, and I looked at it and I thought, you guys have doomed us. You've doomed the human race. You've certainly doomed Western civilization. Uh, you've probably doomed most life forms on the planet, all for the sake of your ideology. And I was angry bloody angry. If I had walked, if I'd met one of those guys on the street, I don't think I would have been able to restrain myself from getting. Yeah. Okay. I probably could restrain myself now, but I was so angry and, and the sense of, um, sense of doom, I should say, the sense that we're facing something, um, which there is no, there's no salve on the other side. There's no central bank. Uh, to, there's no central bank at the climate to counteract what's been done by the private financial system. Um, it's something which when it hits will be devastating and we'll see the system fall apart because again, we're pushed, as you say, well beyond the planet's capacity. And in that situation, the people who are most responsible for our fate are the ones who are the chief defenders of the system. So I was angry and because it also clearly, this last time when I could say to my, my second wife uh, that we'll be okay because, you know, if I'm, if I get a warning sufficiently well, then I'll, I'll be okay financially, which was true. Uh, this one, there's nothing that's going to save me or her or anyone. 
when this starts to strike, the system will fall apart in ways that, you know, only if you're a complete insider with the uber wealthy and you have some absolute bolt hole where you get off the planet, then you're going to be safe. But that's that's not going to be me, and it's not going to be the vast majority of people on the planet. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, including allowing your emotions to show. Yeah, this is part of what motivated me to engage mm. in these conversations is um, uh, when you get what we have been doing, and most people have been clueless, but when you get what the uh, the systems in which the economic primary mm. and, and, and political systems in which we operate are so human-centered and so short-term profit maximizingly yeah. or oriented and so clueless from an ecological standpoint on everything mm. we depend. You don't have to be a long-term thinker to realize that that is radically unsustainable. And in fact, yeah. it's, 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 it is doom. It's leading us to doom. It is doom. And then that's, that's I mean, the, the, the complete ignorance they have of the physical world is something which is quite uh, remarkable about economists in general, because they will talk about GDP and capital, and they'll talk about the environment as well. There's symbols on a blackboard not as things they're embedded inside. Yes, yes. Oh, and, that's, and that's the, well, wait, 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 hold on. Uh, I want, that's, that's good language. Those are symbols on a blackboard, not what we live in? What? Not the uh, constituents of the world in which they're embedded. Yes, yes, yes. Not, wow, that, that's great. Um, because I, I, in my sort of laypersons, I mean, I, I share a reality-based message, sort of bringing together science, inspiration, and sustainability. So that's my that's mm. my world, and I'm always trying to find ways of languaging that allow people to be present to what's real, move through mm. whatever grief, whatever anger, whatever despair that they they feel, and then come through to whatever kind of inspired local action they can that can make mm. a difference at this whatever spheres they can but ultimately to trust that we are in declining times and that there are there are things in fact the last question that i'll come back to is you know what's possible and what's no longer possible yeah um but i, I want to run one thing by you because of your background and because of your expertise in terms of uh economic models and, and systems dynamics um it seems to me, in my layperson's understanding, that if there were one thing that we could shift that would make the difference, I, don't, I just don't see us doing that prior to collapse, but mm. should some remnant of humanity survive, I think this is the only sustainable way of engaging in any kind of economic exchange of goods and services, mm. which is to measure progress, to measure well-being, not in human-centered terms like GDP, GNP, mm but to measure progress and well-being in life-centered terms, like how well is the soil doing decade by decade? Mm, how well mm, the mm. forest doing decade by decade? What's yeah. the, how well are the other species doing decade by decade? I, I think that's the only sane ecological way of measuring progress. And I'm just curious what you think about that. Yeah, that's quite, I mean, one of my good friends is one called, uh, you should actually include Kate Raworth. If you put Kate oh, Raworth on your list, oh, says, yeah. I, I will reach out to Kate. You're the second person that's recommended her and I just haven't reached out to her yet. Yeah. Kate's a good friend and uh, Kate, Kate's approach what you call donut economics. And I said, I, I don't like the symbol of the donut that implies so much Homer Simpson to me. I'd rather read the, what I call the wheel economy um, because what she has is the idea of the donut has an inside and an outside. If you're in the inside of the donut, well, in some sense, you're starving. If you're on the outside of the donut, you're over, you're over consuming within the donut, you're sustainable, and she has a range of indicators there, including things like potassium, for example, which is one of those uh, elements we're going to exhaust our physical supply of. Uh, that's probably one of the most fragile of, the, of them, but also water quality, et cetera, et cetera, species 
uh, species extinction versus species development. Um, yeah, so what we, we have to really see ourselves as husbands of the planet. In the classic sense of the word husband. Yes. Uh, the husbandman from the from the physiocrat's view, the person who takes care of and maintains and extends the the uh, viability of the soil. And so once we do that, then we, well, stewards is probably a better, less sexist word, stewards of the planet. And we measure our success on how well the planet is doing. Uh, and we, as part of that planet, have to not be too much of an overhead. Of course, what, what we've done, we've become the classic predator, but we're not just the predator eating the prey, we're eating the prey's food as well. And that's why I expect a, a catastrophic collapse to come our way because with what we've done, we've so dramatically overextended uh, our reach that just like any predator that exhausts the prey, our numbers are going to fall. But they'll fall in a catastrophic way because our means of catching the prey are so elaborate, so much dependent upon a network that will fall apart as, as, as the ecology responds to the pressures we put it under. And we've also eaten, not just eating that they're the most immediate prey, we don't eat the wildebeest, we eat the we eat the, the the crane that all the best used to eat. We eat that, and we're eating the microbes as well. So we're we're really completely eliminating uh, the capacity of the planet to service us, and we're calling our exploitation of the planet growth and GDP and income. And we really have to say, look, um, that's mining. We're fundamentally mining the planet. We're mining it beyond its current capacity. We, have, we, we, we will not do it, I agree with you. I think we're gonna go through a catastrophic decline. Uh, all I hope that in the aftermath of that, we realize uh, what's left of humanity, realizes we have to husband the planet, we have to get it restored. And our main responsibility is not to ourselves, but to life. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, my wife, one of the things that she's passionately engaged in is assisting trees, native trees mm. migrating poleward faster than any other animals can move their seeds. That's life-centered action, whether we survive or not. Mm. Well, Steve, I'm curious, how have you, or what, what have you found psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, like what nourishes you? What, what, what practices or, you know, worldview or philosophy have you found that has, um, allowed you to wake up on a day-by-day -day basis doing what you can do, doing what you're expert at, and, and also emotionally dealing with what you know? Oh, I, I mean, that's, I'm, not, I'm agnostic, so it's not, not religion. Um, but I think the sense of ethics I got out of my Catholic education was an important part of my um, spiritual, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic but spiritual in that sense. Um, so I have a, an appreciation of the way in which complexity has risen over time. And I see us as the, the ultimate embodiment of that complexity on our own planet without the, without the awareness necessary to make us survive overall. So I see life as progressing in an evolutionary sense. I've got an evolutionary uh, ethicist in that sense, if you like. And I therefore see our responsibility as a species uh, being to know life. And what we're doing instead is destroying it at the moment. Yeah. So that the belief that we can the hope it's not a belief anymore but it's a hope that we can transcend this this will not be uh what they call the um the uh, what's the equation again the drake it won't be the drake filter because the great the great fear is that we know we only know of us as the only intelligent species in the universe um, after 50 years of looking for signals of other life forms we haven't found them um now there's two answers there one we don't know one, one where we don't know how to look which is possible. The other is that we are the only one. 
Well, there's, and, I, I, I see a third, which is uh, that we've made an idol of our form of consciousness. I, I remember seeing it, a, a, a Scientific American, I forget, some science journal, where it had a picture of the galaxies and it said, are yeah. we alone? And it seems to me that the, the sustainable perspective, the indigenous perspective would say, no, we're actually one of thousands, millions of other forms of intelligence. But if we mm. elevate our own as the only form of uh, intelligence that matters or the only form of intelligence that, uh, that uh, makes sense focusing on, then we're going to miss the fact that we, we are embedded in, we are part of, we are dependent upon this larger system that we call in a secular way, the ecosphere, the biosphere, but mm. uh, all sustainable cultures related to the ecosphere or the biosphere as a divine thou, not a secular mm. it. So it wasn't, it was, it seems to me that. Um, well, that's uh, actually James Lovelock in a sense. That's the guy hypothesis. Well, and that's, that's got yeah, much more support in recent years, I might add. Yes, but it's a little bit, I, I appreciate Jim Lovelock's perspective on that, but I I've draw more on that in terms of Thomas Berry and especially Teddy Goldsmith, Edward Goldsmith, who mm -hmm. founded and published The Ecologist magazine for 40 years. And he wrote it, his sort of magnum opus is The Way, an ecological worldview. Um, mm. But at any rate, uh, coming back to, uh, because I too, uh, well, I'm not agnostic because for me, theism and atheism are both clueless ecologically. Well, they're, they're, belie they're, they're belief systems. In both yeah, they're, 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 exactly. They're belief systems that are about believing mm. in a supernatural deity, therefore you're a theist, mm. or disbelieving in a supernatural deity, therefore you're mm. an atheist. But both mm. sides treat the ecosphere as an it to be exploited, yeah, not yeah. a vow to be honored. Mm. So I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely an eco-theologian or uh, 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 Thomas Berry, my great mentor, called himself a geologian. So not a theologian. <laughs> but a geologian. So That's I'm a good a, expression. Yeah. Well, in that sense, probably I am as well. But I'm also, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, the, the thing I'm thinking about is why haven't we found signals of other life on other planets? And uh, the answer may well be that none of them have made it through this crisis. That yes. we all, we all, you know, if, you, if you're going to have the conditions for life, you're going to have fossils. You're going to have fossilized fuel. You're going to have a hyper-intelligent species that learns how to exploit it at some stage. Uh, it'll get on an absolute adrenaline high of the increase in energy it can exploit before it wakes up to the fact that the planet can't survive with it, and bang, it goes. And that's uh, so. That's that's my yeah. perspective on that front. Yeah. And I'm just hoping that we hopefully are lucky enough, being in a planet in a planetary system with more than one planet, where we can actually at least walk on the surface, if not to survive, um, that we have the technology that might get us there before we eliminate, or not eliminate, but massively damage the capacity of this biosphere to sustain itself. I've got some hope we'll get through that. And in that sense, you know, that's... Um, but in terms of philosophy, I mean, I've, my background is uh, Marcuse, um, Marx, uh, Russell, a whole range of philosophers. Um, in that sense, theologians of humanity rather than theologians of religion. And I've got an, a strong ethical core, um, which I think, again, is an evolutionary thing. We see that in, in behaviour, in rhesus monkeys, when you give one, a, one a, 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 a cucumber and the other a grape, the one getting the cucumber will throw it back in your face. Um, the sense of fairness uh, is, is something which is a, an evolutionary thing in, in, society, in, in species which are not learners and you know the only one the only animals that are complete learners are things like uh, uh, tigers you know not uh, not humanity not uh, not our not even herd species 
So there's a sense of sharing this that comes out of evolution itself. Yeah. And, uh, and that is any philosophy. That's what I come back to. Yeah. I often say my faith is in evolution. My faith is in ecology. My faith is in life. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I don't share your the uh, hope or whatever in terms of humans living off the planet, but I do. I do profoundly. Uh, uh, I'm inspired by the the possibility that mm. this crash will be so significant, kind of like the movie The Avatar, when uh, mm. when the the colonel is about to blow up uh, the Tree of Souls and says he says that we will create a crater in their racial memory that they will never forget. And I'm mm, mm. that this collapse uh, globally will be the crater in our racial memory that we will never forget, and that we will kind of like the prodigal species, we will you know come home to reality, come home to the biosphere as divine, and once again uh, live in a mutually enhancing relationship with everything we depend upon. Mm. Um, at least that's a vision that wakes me up, inspired to do whatever I can do, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, well, Steve, I want to ask about uh, the your understanding of the past, because sometimes people have um, a, a restoring of the past as well as a restoring of the future. And some people uh -huh. think it's sort of inevitable that tool making, symbolic speech using animals like us would, would end up where we are, certainly once we became anthropocentric or human-centered rather than life -centered. Yeah. Um, but others uh, I've talked to have a sense of, well, if we only had done this or if we only mm. hadn't taken that path, sort of those if onlys. And I'm just curious, how have you interpreted the past as, as well as the future? Oh, and in that sense, uh, we lost our tribal foundation. I think a lot of what I read about, for example, the um, American Indian, um, the um, very my heart at wounded knee. For example, a very influential book on me when I'm, I think it was back in, the, in my 20s when I read that. And what you sense is this sense of spirituality. Again, you talked about the avatar and that idea of uh, the way the, 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 the species on that planet um, saw itself as part of an overall system. That awareness, I often wondered, would, would you have developed the internal combustion engine? if our philosophy had been American Indian rather than American capitalist? Exactly. And of course, we know that the electric car preceded the um, preceded the internal combustion car um, with the choice in looking at the damage that one does to the environment versus the, the other. Uh, I have a strong feeling we would not have made that decision. Even the city I live in now, Amsterdam, for example, um, you know, the, the thing Amsterdam is famous for at least two things. <laughs> the second being bicycles. And, uh, and was it that inevitable? No. In fact, it turns out that about 40 years ago, uh, they were having traffic has traffic problems, as every growing city did, and they consulted town and country planners, and one proposal they got was to put freeways through the heart of the city. And the council looked at that and just, there's a strong tradition of bicycles in, in Holland, which goes right back to the pre-war period. The, well, apparently one of the things that most annoyed the, the Dutch about the Germans was the Germans commandeered all their bicycles at one stage. So bicycles always had high status here. And the council made the decision, no, we're going, to, we're going to go in the opposite direction, keep the freeways outside the city and in the city and encourage uh, bicycle transport. And that's what they've done. And now, of course, you couldn't imagine the city any other way, but it was a deliberate choice to go that direction yes. that had that outcome. And then, of course, when I cross those freeways, I, I find it incredibly frustrating on my bicycle and my training rides because I've got to sit at a traffic light waiting for four cars to go past in a minute 
before the bloody light change, let me trust my bicycle, you know? Uh, and um, so that was a choice. Yeah. And it was a sensible choice made under sensible philosophy, which has given this a very, very livable city here. So the same thing about what would we, would we made the same decisions about exploitation if we had a more holistic philosophy. At the same time, the inevitability, the, the, the attraction of exploiting that free energy is enormous. Yeah. And if you look back and say, like, when did we first realize the power of, of, of fossil fuel? It was with, with um, Watt and the steam engine. Um, we were using coal before that, of course. So the reason the steam engine was invented, perfected, was to actually get water out of coal mines, uh, much more effective than they could do with the horses turning a wheel um, or with water wheels doing the same thing. So once you've got that, the inevitability that it's a seductive pull of energy is enormous. Uh, but of course, at the same time, we completely ignored the pollution that came with it. Yeah. And that was the very rapacious nature of British capitalism. Uh, there's a the wonderful story about uh, one of the great uh, defenders of capitalism is a guy called Jean-Baptiste Say. He gave us the idea of Say's law, which is completely wrong, but you know, it, it persuades a lot of people. And Jean-Baptiste Say worshipped Adam Smith. And he decided to go on a pilgrimage. He would say it was French, of course, for the sound of the name go on a pilgrimage to Adam Smith's birthplace. He never got there because the further he went, he, he, I think he was actually maybe the one who, he didn't coin the phrase dark satanic mills, but he used it to describe the landscape. It was so ugly, so oppressive, so smoke-filled, he went back to France. He didn't actually make it to Edinburgh. So th that's that's the danger that it's, it's the, the, the seductiveness, the power that exploiting those fossil fuels gives us. I'm not sure that any part of our civilization would have overcome it. If I have to think of my own lifetime, the, the point where I see a turning point is, it comes back to the limits to growth. When I read that, I thought it was an incredibly well worked out, um, you know, the, um, the system dynamics made complete sense to me. I had never seen it before. That was only the second or third uh, implementation of a system dynamics model, but it made complete sense to me. And then I saw economists disparaging it completely. Yeah. Now, of course, one, one of the scenarios, the limits to growth, was to control population, to start working in pollution control systems, to uh, reduce our dependence upon fossil fuel, et cetera, et cetera, about seven different policies. And that gave us a sustainable future. And I thought in 75, if we'd gone that way, we could have avoided the situation we're in now. It's really the last 50 years that have done it to us. So I think that was the major turning point for me. Uh, and my profession played a direct and deliberate role in destroying that. And so I'm curious, has immortality and death, uh, your awareness of your own and ours, has that played any role for you in, in, uh, in your worldview? Have you found that helpful at all or is not something? I've, I've had to come to terms with it. I mean, I, I desperately want us not to go extinct. I desperately want a, for a fragment of humanity to survive, to learn from this experience, and then to resurrect the earth, to terraform the earth back to what it, not back to what it was, but to something of, you know, of, of the best, reproduction we can make of what it was before we went into economic overdrive. Um, and then to start exploring the rest of the universe. That um, you know, I really do have that vision that, you know, if, for example, even in terms of if you believe in life, if you want life to survive, then we know that at some point in the next 5 billion years, the sun will come out to the, uh, to the orbit of Earth and absorb the planet. So not just for ourselves, but for the sake of the rest of the life on the planet, we have to find a way to get off it. And I'm talking over five billion years, I'm not talking over <laughs> tomorrow. Um, but 
that that vision is still a large part of what I want to see for humanity. And in, in so many ways, we have got very close to transcending our limits on that front. Uh, the, you know, the computer technology we've developed, the understanding of the physical world, um, it, it's what we lack as understanding of our own culture, our own yeah. social system. That's what we lack the understanding of. And that's what's going to doom the successful side of us, which has been the engineering, the science, and so on. So I want to see that continue. I don't want to see that just lost like in, in another so-called dark ages. This, unlike the last dark age, this really would be a dark age. And you know, you know, to, to imagine the damage we'll do to the planet. I mean, as I saw a wonderful article just recently saying that uh, the whole idea that there's such a thing as the Anthropocene epoch is uh, a, a total exaggeration. Uh, because if it's anything, it's going to be an event. It'll last too short a time to be called an epoch. Yes, exactly. And if you, yeah, and in, in the long term, we'll we'll leave no remnant of, of our a future intelligent species that might evolve on this planet in you know, one or two hundred million years after we go, would possibly find no record of our civilization, given plate tectonics and, and all the processes of the planet. I don't want to have to do that. I would like us to continue. I would like us to get past it. And that, that passion, that hope is a large part of what keeps me going, yeah. even though I know that it might be futile. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, that leads to my last question, which is related to remaining opportunities. Um, I'm curious, what's your take on what is beyond our control and where we still can make a difference individually or collectively? In other words, what's your sense of what's no longer possible, but what still is possible? Well, no longer possible is to stop an environment catastrophe. Um, the, it's pretty obvious that the, the Arctic ice is gone. Uh, that means Greenland is gone. The uh, explosion of the tundra, the breakdown of the, the permafrost, the possible explosion of ocean hyd of methane hydrates, all this stuff. Um, we can possibly stop the methane hydrates. We certainly can't stop Greenland, Arctic, and possibly West Antarctic ice shelf. Um, once we realise that, and one thing, those are the, in some ways, those are the minor long-term consequences. The short-term, what we've done in terms of uh, biosphere elimination, lo losing species, and what that will do, coming back and affecting our capacity to stay alive. Uh, we can't also avoid, I think, a huge population collapse. Uh, on the trajectory of where we're heading on towards, scientists are saying the current capacity of the planet is less than one billion. Right. So, and that 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 means a you know an incredible amount of if, if human um, conflict, mm -hmm. and I don't think we can avoid that. I I I think we can get off planet, and still that's why I'm a, I'm an Elon Musk fan. Getting us off planet, I think, is vital. Getting a survivable core off planet, we can do that. Um, we can possibly, the individual action, I mean, in some ways, individual action to try to minimise your footprint just leaves more room for somebody else to expand into it. I don't see that as being a particularly sustainable thing to do. What is more sustainable is to work out, uh, like in, in, a, in a community style, what is a survivable, um, reproducible community? How can we combine our technology with our understanding of the biosphere to create pockets that might survive? Uh, while on the planet. So like in, in advanced communes uh, where you're working on uh, sustainable agriculture, uh, sustainable social system, but I think 
that and the maelstrom was going to come our way. If you succeed, you're going to be invaded by eco-fascists. So there's no real hope to me in that side of things. But at least if we learn it, we can pass on the ideas to the future. Yeah. And a large part of what I see myself doing is writing for those who survive this process to explain why the hell it went wrong and, uh, and what to avoid once we start rebuilding society in the future. Information about this, about this project, go to postdoom.com.